Well, let's open up to Psalm 48. As we continue our journey through the Psalms, uh, today we're going to cover um, 48 and 49. And uh, I, I know it's taken us a while to go through the Psalms, but, you know, I mean, you have two options. If you want, we can, you know, fly through them and probably not get as much out of it. Um, or we can kind of dive in a little bit. So who knows? You know, maybe it'll take a year and a half to go through the Psalms. But if you've gone uh, through it with us, it, it's kind of cool because then you're going to have it, I think, in your heart in a deeper way. Because, you know, when I read the Bible, I have my Proverbs, and that's a, a proverb I think you should read one every day, you know, like whatever the date is, like today is the 13th. And so you read Proverbs 13, and so you're going to get a lot of wisdom. And, uh, you know, so that's one of the books you're always in, the book of Proverbs. And then also the Psalms. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have it in your heart, but a lot of people have a conviction in their heart to read the Psalms on a daily basis. And so maybe in the morning you can go through your devotional reading, uh, and then at night it's kind of cool. You know, I would encourage you. I don't know what you normally do before you go to sleep. Some people watch television and they fall asleep in front of the television. You know, maybe it would be better to turn it off and to read a few psalms before you go to sleep. The psalms are awesome, you know, and as you read them, they're the most quoted book in the New Testament. There's so much about Jesus in here. There's so much comfort and encouragement that we need. And, and so um, I, I, do, I do encourage you to, to be in the psalms. They're, they're just beautiful. And tonight is no exception. And so let's begin reading in Psalm 48. We notice it's a song, uh, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And we read in verse 1, Great is the Lord. Amen? Amen? And greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. Notice what it says, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. And so we have another psalm written by the sons of Korah, another psalm about the way the Lord, he dwells in and defends his holy city. And we're going to see that's in reference to Jerusalem. And, and to me, when I, when I see this right here, notice again that the city of our God you know, we're going to see the Bible talk so much about Jerusalem. You know, I, I don't know if Jerusalem has a special place in your heart. You know, I kind of think it should. You know, um, not only the, the literal, physical place there in Israel, but, but what it symbolizes. You know, you read Galatians, I think it's chapter 4, verse 6. It talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. You know, when you think of Jerusalem, what do you think of? You know, I'll never forget the first time I went to Israel, you know, going on the bus ride and, and you know, the, they kind of like uh, prepare you for it a little bit, but they, they tell you, okay, once you kind of go over this hill and they just tell you, look to your left and man, you see the whole city of Jerusalem and there's just something about it that is just so significant, so special. And of course, we know that it's because of the Lord. You know, we're going to see here, it's a city that, that in one sense, it's a city of God. It's a city of the great king. It's a city where God dwells. It's a city that God defends. It's a city that one day Jesus will rule from in the millennial kingdom. It's a city, even in heaven, there's going to be a new Jerusalem. There's something significant about this city. It's very, very special to us. We notice there in verse 1, it's called the the city of our God. And did you notice there in verse 2, it's called the city of the great king. That's where Jesus will rule from there in Jerusalem. And it's interesting because Jesus, I think it's Matthew 5.35, right around there, he, he said, don't swear by Jerusalem. And he called it the city of the great king. And that's where he got it. This is where he got that from, you know. So, it's just a, a real special place, not, not simply a city, though. It, we read here that it stands up and it stands out. In, in verse 1, he, he mentions it as a holy mountain and how beautiful it is in elevation. You know, one of the things that you'll see 
when you study the Bible, I don't know if you guys ever realize this or not, but wherever you're coming from, if you're going to Jerusalem, it always says you go up. You go up to Jerusalem 87 times in the Bible. You're going you're gonna to go up to Jerusalem. And, and what we're working towards, and I think really what the psalm is going to say and the significance of it, is that it's a place where God's people meet God. Where his, you know, it's a city and, and we're his citizens. And, and it's this, this place we're going to see later in verse 9 where the temple is. There's something special about the temple. Now, we know, of course, that no matter where you go, especially now under the new covenant, you know, you're the temple of God. God lives in us as individuals. And then also God lives in us as a congregation, though. But there is something significant about going to church, going to church service, going to the temple, going to the sanctuary, going where there's a body of believers who are gathered together in Jesus' name. You know, we're going to see that. It's significant for us. And so, you know, he's going to talk about the mountain and he talks about Mount Zion and he talks about north, uh, the northern part of it because that's where Mount Zion was. And then eventually it, it, it included the, the whole entire temple mount. It was on the north side and we're going to see that, that this is really what he's talking about, how it's significant for us in the scriptures and, and in life because it's there in one sense that we meet the Lord. We, we go up and we grow up and we kind of meet with God. And so, you know, Mount Zion, I don't know if you guys have ever studied that out. It's a place mentioned 21 times in the Bible and it's found all the way over in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. You're going to see that, that Jesus is standing on Mount Zion. And so, as we're reading this, we're, 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 we are talking about a city, a literal physical city, but I think there's more to it. You know, we're going to see as we go through. Originally, Zion referred to the, 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 the southern part of the hilltops of Jerusalem, but then you'll read 2 Samuel 5, and you'll see that it was a stronghold captured under the leadership of David, and so eventually became known as the city of David, and then what happened was Solomon built the temple on the north of the citadel. And so Zion was extended then to include the entire temple mount. And, and you know, eventually the city of God, Jerusalem, Mount Zion, it all became uh, synonymous, kind of a metaphor for Jerusalem and even connected to Christians. A passage that you might want to make note of is in Hebrews chapter 12 in verse 22 it says, you know, you guys haven't come to Sinai, you've come to Mount Zion. Not the law, but you've come to the love. He says, you've come to this Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels. And so um, Jerusalem, the true living God, where he lives, and in one sense, if we could say it, where we live as well. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. This is why we worship in the city of our God, in his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion and the sides of the north. And again, that's nearing north towards the, the temple, the, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. And so notice there, God is in her palaces, and that's her towers. So it's kind of like God is there in her towers, and, and so he's dwelling there, so he's defending us there. You know, and, and so it, it's so cool to know, you know, this is, this is God, you know, and he kind of gives an example in verse 4. He says, For behold, the kings assembled, they passed by together, they saw it, and so they marveled, they were troubled. They, they hastened away, they, they ran away. Fear took hold of them there, and pain, as of a woman in birth pangs, as when you break the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. You know, God dwells in us. 
God dwells in Jerusalem. God dwells in his church. God dwells in his people. God defends his people. And you may not think he defends you because you're like, well, what about all this stuff that has happened to me in my life? But little do you know what's really going on behind the scenes. And that's kind of what we see here. You know, again, we've gone over the fact that the last three Psalms, there are some who believe that these were written after the Lord, you know, sent one angel to come down and, 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 and to kill 185,000 Assyrians that had surrounded Jerusalem. You know, it looked so bad and God just took care of it. There are some who believe that's what happened. Others believe it was the great victory recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And there you'll see the Ammonites and you'll see the Syrians and you'll see all these armies that came against Jerusalem and there was a battle there and how God gave them the victory. Again, we don't know for sure, but we know it was a time in which, you know, maybe it didn't look too good because they were outnumbered. You know, maybe it didn't look good because of, you know, whatever the, the situation was, but then the Lord showed up and man, he didn't just show up. You know, when it's almost like when they saw him, they, they got afraid. They, they were afraid. Not just that, they started experiencing pain, like the pain of a woman giving birth. That's pain, ladies. Thank you. That's, that's you. You know, you guys do that. And, and not only pain, but it's like the ships of Tarshish. When the, when the winds and the waves, they crash against this magnificent ship. Now, you guys know Tarshish was all the way over there in Spain. These were the big ships. These were the, the ones that were constructed strong. They could travel far, um, but it was no match. And so, it, you know, I, I don't know. You know, I know sometimes we complain about the things that do hit us in life, but if you only knew the way that God defended you and the things that don't hit you in life, I mean, the way that, and I can visualize it, man, the king's coming under the influence of the devil. The demons coming after you, trying to take you down, trying to take you, ruin you, and, and, and you know, and it doesn't look good, and you're going through the battle, but the next thing you know, they see Jesus, or they see, you know, the, the angelic hosts that are surrounding us and protecting us, and the next thing you know, they're afraid. Next thing you know, they're in pain. Next thing you know, they're thrashed. They're defeated. You know, that's us. That's who we are as citizens of Jerusalem. You know, we're American citizens. Praise God for that. We live in a great country. But more importantly than that, we're citizens of Jerusalem. And, and when you look at this right here, he says, that's what's really going on in your life. You know, and I know, I just wish that we could really see things the way they are, because I think that we look at the things that do touch us, the things that do discourage us sometimes, you know, and we think that we're all defeated, and in all reality, in those things, you're more than conquerors. Those are the things that keep you on your knees. Those are the things that that sometimes drive you to the Lord. Those are the things that protect you. God won't allow anything to come into your life unless it's something that can be beneficial for your walk. And so, and all the other things, man, you know, he protects. And, and so, when I see these kings and they come to the city of God and, you know, they're all assembled together thinking they're going to do their stuff and, and, then, and then they see, you know, what's really going on there, how they're afraid and in pain and defeated, broken up like the ships of Tarshish, it brings me back to verse 1. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. You got to know, even though you may not feel it, you got to know this is always going on in your life. You know, you may get in a car accident. You're all bummed out, man, because whatever, there's $2,000 worth of damage. But God protected your life. See, we have to see things God's way. You know, when we look at this right here, we read in verse 8, as, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, God will establish it forever, Salah. 
You know, and in, and in verse 8, it's kind of like he's saying, you know, the psalmist is saying, well, we've heard stories like this before. You know, we, we've heard, but now we've seen, now we've experienced it, you know? I mean, in the city, the citizens, the people of the Lord of hosts right there, that's the, the, the armies of God, right? And, and, and what, he, what he's trying to say right here is that God will establish it forever. He will make it safe forever. And we read that throughout the Bible about Jerusalem, about Zion. In Psalm 87, verse 5, And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her, you know, even to the latter days. You know, and so you study Jerusalem, and we know um, now it's not random to me it's significant that once again it's declared and it's stronger and that it's the capital of israel you know god's doing something right god is doing something you read isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 it talks about jerusalem in the last days malachi chapter micah chapter 4 and verse 1 and then again even in heaven you know, we read it in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12 and in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so there, there should be something significant in our heart when it comes to Jerusalem. There really should be. You know, we read in verse, verse 9, and this is so beautiful. We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the end of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments or justice. And so we read there, first of all, in verse 9, that, that we have thought, O oh God, on your loving kindness. You know, one translation says we meditate on your unfailing love. Do you? Do you ever just sit there, just sit down and think? Do you ever, do you ever do that? Just sit down and take some time. I know life is busy. We're getting text messages and social media and, and voices, you know, and so many things to do. But do you ever just sit there and meditate on his loving kindness? That's what the Bible says right here. We have thought, oh God, on your loving kindness. We meditate on your unfailing love. Or one translation says we reflect on your loyal love. I think if we did, we'd be different. You know, because the enemy has us focused on the things that are negative that we perceive to be bad, you know, and it's so crazy the way that those things will haunt you sometimes. They'll keep you up at night. They'll wake you up in the morning. And, 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 and you know, for us to just to stop and to think about, about God's love, you know, that, you know, he, he watches over you every day. I mean, there's not a breath that you don't take that he doesn't give to you. There's not a hair that you have that he has not numbered. There's not a tear that, that you can cry that doesn't make it into his bottle. I mean, when you, when you think on God's love, you know, you think on the cross and how all your sins, all your sins were laid on him and all the wrath that we deserved, he absorbed for us. You know, we have to stop and think on his love. And that's what we see the psalmist is encouraging us to do. And, and we do that, interesting, in the midst of your temple. And so, you know, maybe that's one of the things that we do here at church service, huh? You know, I mean, I, I, you can do it at home if you want, but it's kind of cool to be able to come together and, and just together we, we talk about it, you know? I mean, do you know God loves you? Even though I'm his favorite, he still loves you guys. He does, man. You know, but um, I, I know that some of us here, we have a hard time understanding what unconditional love is, and we don't feel like we're worthy, and we don't feel like we're lovely, but, you know, you guys got to understand that he loves us because of who he is, and he's demonstrated that love. Romans 5.8 says, 
because he died on the cross. And so, you know, in verse 10 is interesting. He says, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. You know, and when you think of God's name, I mean, there's a lot to think on, huh? You think of uh, the, 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 the Lord, their capital. I don't know about your Bible, in my Bible right there, um, you know, when we talk about the Lord, and usually throughout the Psalms right here, we have the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Even the word God, it has in it, the, the name L is speaking of his strength. Uh, Yahweh speaks of his, you know, just the, the personal name of God. I am, you know, whatever you need. You know, and then ultimately we move over to um, the name of Jesus, right? And it's so cool, you know, um, I, when we have his name in our hearts, you know, we know that the Lord is our Savior. Jehovah is our salvation. Matthew one twenty one, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all you got to do is start thinking on the name of God, you know? Um, the saving us from our sins is saving us from the penalty of sin, which is hell. We're not going to go there. Thank you, Jesus. Saving us from the power of sin. And I don't have to bow down to it anymore. I can say no to sin and temptation and, and one day saving us from the presence of sin where we'll be in heaven, right? And so, uh, you know, it's, and it's, again, it's interesting when you look at this right here how it's not just uh, the citizens of Jerusalem. Notice again in verse 10, according to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. And, and we're seeing hints now of, you know, not only people getting saved all around the world, but eventually we're going to see the millennial kingdom. You know, there what you see, uh, again, if you go back to verse 2, the joy of the whole earth. The joy of the whole earth, that, that's really in reference to the time of the millennial kingdom. Up until then, it's kind of a troublesome stone for the whole earth. So you see these glimpses that God is showing us. You know, what we find in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, it says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so we read right there in verse 10, Let Mount Zion rejoice, let the daughters of Judah be glad because of your judgments or justice. You know, I don't know if this is true. I mean, I know that God designed the, the world in you know, his way, but some say that the reason why there's a 24-hour time zones all around the earth is so that um, all around the, the world, there's always someone praising <laughs> you know, the Lord. And so he is worthy. He is great. And so we close in verse 12. It says, walk about Zion and go all around her, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generation following. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. Now, one translation says in verse 12, Go, inspect the city of Jerusalem. Walk around and count the many towers. Take note of the fortified walls. You know, and we can walk around in Bible history, right? Um, and we can look in the Bible in that sense, and we can walk around. Of course we know it's not the physical fortress. Of course we know it's not the... You know, the soldiers of Israel, we know their defense is God. And so that's why I encourage you to read your Bibles and see the God. Get to know the God that we serve. Fall in love with him. Notice how he defends his people. You know, and if anything does uh, uh, touch them, like we read in that extreme case of Job, even that, you know, it was a purpose. 
It was a great purpose. And here Job is, probably the oldest book in the Bible. It's probably been around longer than any other book as far as the written copies. And he has encouraged how many people through his story of suffering. And so, you're, you know, you walk around and you're looking and you're seeing how God is. And not only in, in history, but have you ever walked around like your own life? Have you ever walked around and seen the ways that God has... I mean, I look back on, on my life and I, and I, you know, I, I think of how God has always been there for me all my life. And this could have happened and that accident and, you know, when I was doing drugs and all that kind of stuff and drinking. And I told you guys the awful stories about, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was drinking and driving. I didn't even remember you know, and I'm, it's just God's grace. So you walk around and you see how God has defended you, as God has sustained you. And then he says right here, and then you want to tell it to the generation following. Open your, open your mouth. Tell what God has done. Don't commit the sin of silence any longer. Who are you talking to? Who are you sharing with? You know, the, the next generation. You know, we want to be able to praise, but we also want to be able to preach, right? And so Psalm 78, 5 through 7, it talks about how we tell it to the next generation. We tell it to our children, and not only our, our, our biological children, um, and you, and I don't want to get like weird, but I want to say you better tell them. <laughs> tell your kids. Tell your grandkids, but then also spiritual children as well. Uh, responsibility we have to our generation, uh, uh, not just the biological family, but even the children, right, in our spiritual family. Second Timothy 1.2, You therefore, my son, it says, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there you have Paul saying, I want, you know, I told you, Timothy, and Timothy, I want you to tell other guys who are faithful, and then they're going to tell other guys. There's four generations there. You know, and uh, you know, for us, I mean, it's kind of, you may think, well, does it really work that way? Yes. And past, someone told Pastor Chuck, and Pastor Chuck told Pastor Rawl, and Pastor Rawl told, you know, there's this, this generation. That's how we do it. You guys make sure that you do not allow Satan to keep you silent. And we want to go, we want to see what God has done, and we want to tell it to the next generation. And I, and I just love verse 14, you know, for this is God, our, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. You know, in Isaiah fifty-eight eleven, it says, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought, and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like lost as a Christian. How many of you? No, I'm just joking. I won't make you raise your hands, you know. Sometimes it just seems like, Lord, are you sure about this? You know, it just doesn't seem like it would be, you know, part of the navigation, and, and, you know, I just know that God is our, our guide, you know. To me, that brings comfort. It really does. I mean, I'm just trying to follow him. And, and, and even sometimes when, like I was yesterday, I was going from one place to another, and I'm so bad with direction. As a guy, that's kind of an embarrassing thing to confess, to be honest with you, because my wife is better at it than I am, you know. But, um, you know, thank God for our, our phones, huh? We have the navigation systems on our phones, and every once in a while, do you guys ever go off track? And then it reroutes it, huh? <laughs> and then it gets you to where you belong. And so um, I want to encourage you guys, man, just let the Lord guide you because he's willing to do so even to death. And so we read next in Psalm 49, again, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. In verse 1, it says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. 
both low and high, rich and poor. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. And so here's a psalm. We're going to see he shifts gears. It's a lot different. It's a, it's a psalm we read there in verse 1 for everyone, for all peoples, for all inhabitants of the world, not just the Jews. But, but you know, he's going to be talking about the wealthy. He's going to be talking about the poor. He's going to be talking about the low and, and the high. And what we find is that the psalmist had heard a proverb. Notice there in verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. So he heard a proverb and, and so he passes it along now as a song. I, I will incline my ear to a proverb, and I will disclose my dark saying on, on the harp. And so the dark saying is more like a riddle. Now, what we're going to study, it, it shouldn't be a riddle, but it is kind of puzzling the way that people are so caught up in the things of this world, in the materialism of this world. I mean, even Christians, you know, yeah, God bless me with a new car. You know, God bless me with a home. God bless me with a raise. God bless me with money in the bank. God bless me with material stuff. And it seems like that's how they perceive blessings. And it's almost puzzling, you know, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad, but but. Is that, is that the way we define blessings? I mean, I know people in Cambodia who are way richer than we are. In Nepal, in Mexico. You know, we go down there and we try to, you know, bless them with stuff. And, and, and so, in one sense, it's a riddle. Why are we so caught up in those things? And we're going to see that sometimes we perceive that you know, person who's blessed financially, you know, and we don't have it. We're like, man, I got stuck with beans again tonight, you know, and, and I wanted some filet mignon, and we, we can even, you know, like I'm driving a conquer or whatever it might be, and we, we can even think, we begin to think, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. You know, maybe I'm not as godly as they are. We start thinking that way. And that's why he says, listen, I'm going to give you some wisdom about wealth and about all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a riddle <laughs> because people, for whatever reason, they don't understand it. Notice we read in verse 5, why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. Now, now verse 5 is interesting. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Now, we're not 100% sure if this is pointing to evil people or if it's speaking of his own evil, so to speak, his own sin that was kind of surrounding him. You know, can, can you visualize it? The, the iniquity uh, at, at his heels? I mean, it's almost like it's chasing him, his own sin, and, and maybe he's afraid. I mean, some say maybe that's what it was, or others say it was just the fact that, you know, he's seeing all these wealthy people around him and yeah, uh, two psalms that have the same message, Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. Thou, you know, Asaph said, I almost stumbled when I saw the prosperity of the wicked until I saw what? Their end. And that's kind of what we're going to see right here as well. You know, if you're saved, if you trust in the Lord for forgiveness, if you know God's love and have his life, then there's no need to be afraid. Why, why should I fear? You don't have to be afraid. Why? Because you're forgiven. You don't have to be afraid. You know, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, you know. 
I mean, you might have a healthy fear of God's discipline, praise God for that, but you don't have to be afraid of damnation because you're a Christian. Right? 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love, it casts out fear because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. You know, when I was reading this story, I don't know why I thought of Numbers 21. If you guys remember the story there, Numbers 21, 4 through 9, the people were complaining about God, they were complaining about Moses, and so you guys remember what happened? The serpents came and bit them. You guys remember that? I don't know why. When I think of like evil at my heels, I'm thinking of snakes. I don't don't know why. So I know symbolic of sin. And so you remember what happened? Uh, The people were dying because of their sin. And they were, you know, Moses says, okay, God, what do we do? God says, I want you to take a a brass uh, serpent. You put it on a pole. You lift it up. And then all the people have to do is look at it and they'll be saved. They don't have to worry about the evil at their heels, so to speak. And, and then the Lord Jesus, he brings that to himself in John chapter 3 and verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so all they had to do was look. All we have to do is look to Jesus. All we have to do is have faith in Jesus. And then there's no fear at the sin that's chasing us down, that's surrounding us sometimes. And then once we put our, our trust in him, you know, then there's this forgiveness. And so for the rich, unfortunately, they didn't have that same type of trust. You know, this psalm right here, it indicts those who trust in their wealth, physical riches rather than grace and God's spiritual riches. Now we're going to be covering Psalm 52 in the coming weeks, and it's about that guy Doeg. He was a man who died rich, but he died in his sins. And we read in Psalm 52, verse 7, here is the man who did not make God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. We read the same thing in Proverbs eleven twenty eight: He who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. You know, and I don't know what it is. I'm not sure exactly how it all works, but sometimes Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There are some rich people who love the Lord. They're good stewards. They're saved. But they're, it's difficult because in one sense, sometimes when you have money, it's almost like you have a mentality that says, I don't need God. You know, and they go and they live their life and they have their fun and they die in their sins. You know, what we find is, you know, we got to be really careful with that, especially those of us here in America you know, if I could just say this to you, and I, Shing, I shared it with you before. I mean, you got, you know, f- you don't have to worry about your food. There's a lot of people out there that they, they, they wonder if they're going to have a meal today. You know, you flip on a switch and whatever. You've got air, air conditioning, electricity. You know, we have clothing uh, galore. How many pairs of shoes? I mean, we have uh, toilets. We have showers. We have hot water. We have medical attention. I mean, did you ever stop to think, even though you might you know, realize it, did you ever stop to think that you're rich in comparison to the rest of the world? And all those riches and all those stuff and all the gadgets, you know, a lot of times they're distractions. And so for us, I mean, just be careful that you don't trust in riches. I was thinking about that young man in 1978 They called him a self-made millionaire. He was only 23 years old. At 24, he had grown to $10 million, and by the age of 25, he had $250 million. I know some of you are thinking right now, you're like, I wish that was me, right? (laughs) That's what we're talking about, though. You have to be careful. At the time of his death, Steve Jobs was worth an estimated $10.2 billion dollars. But all the money in the world could not stop his death and could not save his soul. 
you know, towards the end of his life, and I don't know for sure, they say, started saying, you know, maybe there is a God and kind of opening up a little bit. But you know what? He tried to buy life. He tried to, you know, make it, you know, prolong. I mean, he was uh, um, there. They wanted him to have surgeries, and he tried a variety of alternative treatments as well. And the macrobiotic diets, acupuncture, the special sequencing of the DNA in his tumor to divine to design it to coincide with the special medication that he was treating. His treatments, all his treatments were $100,000 each. Think about that. But, but you know, at the relatively young age of 56, he passed away. You know, because it's not the money. I mean, when it's, when it's our time, God's the one that says, we can't stop our death and we can't save our soul. No sum of money can buy salvation. You know, verse 8, for the redemption of their souls is costly. You know, what can buy us back to God? Redemption means you buy it back. What can buy us back? Only the blood of Jesus, right? Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, it says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. In other words, he's saying like, you know, live like with a healthy fear of God. Live obediently, he says right here, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You know, and, and you know, that's what, that's the only thing that can redeem us. So we spend most of our time, at least the world, especially America, spends most of our time trying to make more money when we know, in our reality, at the end of the day, spiritually speaking, it might not be that productive. Look at verse 7. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. And when we think of ransom, what do you usually think? You think of someone who was kidnapped, huh? And in one sense, that's what's happened. John 10.10, 10, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. So we were kidnapped by the enemy, but Jesus paid the ransom price to buy us back. We read that in Mark 10, 45 and 1 Timothy 2, 6. And so we read in verse 10, for he sees wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Check this out. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever. Then dwelling places to all generations and they call their lands after their own names Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. And so it's interesting. In verse 10, it tells us the rich man who gets caught up in materialism and money and the things that money can buy is a fool. We read that there in verse 10. And he's a senseless person. Jesus talked about that in Luke 12, verse 15 through 21, when a guy was running out of room to put his grains, and what should I do? And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll break, tear down my barns and build bigger barns. And the Lord said to him, you fool, because tonight your soul is required of you. And then what's going to happen to all that stuff that you worshiped all your life? You know, verse 11 to me, I thought was really I don't know, relevant, you know, because, you know, people are so much, they're so caught up into their houses. They are so caught up in their houses. On TV nowadays, I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but have you noticed that there's a lot of food shows? Have you guys noticed that? Food everywhere, big stuff, hot stuff, you name it. There's a lot of sex on TV. There's a lot of food, and there's also a lot of house shows. There's a lot of house shows. Did you guys notice that? And, and that's designed for a specific re reason. I, I was just looking. I noticed there, these, these are house shows. These are just some of them. Rehab Addict, Property Brothers, Ask This Old House, Million Dollar Listing, Love It or List It, Flip or Flop, Kitchen Crashers, House Hunters, Trading Spaces, Income Property, Fixer Upper, Design on a Dime, Mega Dens, on and on and on, all about houses. 
Why is it such a big deal? Why are we so into our houses? And then that's what's happened. We read it right here. Their inner thought is about their houses. You know, we got to be really careful. And again, I'm not saying you can't take care of your stuff, man, but don't worship it. And you just, you know, maybe you don't end up with a house. Maybe you end up with something better, a mansion in heaven. Because some people, man, they trade it all in because they want a house. I'll tell you what, be really careful. You know, it's not smart. Look at verse 13. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their sayings. Like, like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He shall receive me. You know, and, and what we find right here is this is the fate of those who trust in themselves and of their followers, we read in verse 13, who approve their sayings, you know, that, that they, you know, they're, they're going to die just like everyone else. We read earlier that they're going to end up in the pit. They're not just going to die. Uh, they're going to end up in the pit. And when we read right here about the psalmist comparing him to the animals, he's not saying that they, you know, they die and they cease to exist like the animals do. He's just saying they die like the animals. But then for us who are created in the image of God, who don't receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, I mean, we either go to heaven or hell. It's dependent on whether or not we receive him into our heart as a king of kings and Lord of lords. For us, in verse 19, I mean, verse 15, he says, God will redeem my soul. Notice, from the power of the grave, he shall receive me. And we read that in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 55. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 15, and then he experienced it you know, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Finally, there's laid up for me this crown, this crown of righteousness. The time of my departure, it's not defeat for the Christian, it's, it's just a departure. And that's what he's talking about. I love verse 19. And so he says next, I mean verse 15, and so he says next in verse 16, do not be afraid. When one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. And it's interesting, that passage right there, you know, what do you mean be afraid? If someone else, you know, they get a nice house and they start fixing it up. So more than likely, it's talking about don't be in awe. <gasps> oh, that's so nice. That's the way we are, huh? We get so impressed by that. He says, don't, don't be impressed by that. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. But did you ever stop to think that when you're a Christian, the people can't see all your treasures, but you know what Jesus said? You're laying them up in heaven. You ever stop to think about that? When you start getting jealous of someone else's stuff, he says, don't be overawed by that. When he, when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself for men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Because that's what hell is. It's darkness. Think about that. A man who is an honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. You know, this guy right here, he might have a good time on planet earth, a lot of comfort and compliments and people admire and look up to him. But at the end of the day, his life is a vapor. It's a blink of an eye in comparison to eternity. And there's no comparison because this individual refused to trust in the living, loving God and therefore they will perish. You know, and what you find is when you read Luke 16, you'll, you'll see there Jesus teaching on hell, how when people die, immediately they go to hell. It's a holding compartment, also known as Hades. And then you read Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, and it says, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And that's the final destination. And so, I don't know, we just have to rethink things. You know, I, 
I, I mean, it's nice, you know, having whatever, you know, it might be. But be careful that this doesn't consume you because we really want to make sure that we lay up our treasures in heaven. Because Jesus said, where your treasures are, there your heart will be also. I was reading about um, just how, you guys know how in the Egyptians, uh, the pharaohs, they would bury their pharaohs with all their treasures. And you guys remember King Tut? I don't know a lot, but I was tripping out on this guy, man. They buried him, and they said his treasures were worth $750 million. Imagine that they buried him with it. Doesn't that make you mad? You're like, man, I would just... His coffin was worth $13 million. His face... The, you guys have seen the, the, the gold face mask, uh, $476,000. I mean, some, you know, it was crazy the way that they would do it. The Egyptians would even sometimes, uh, you know, get their whatever, their gold bow. They would even have their, their slaves. They would kill a certain amount of them, and they would bury them there with them. So they, you know, would kind of like say, we're going to take it all together because they're going to serve me in the next afterlife, you know. You know, but we have the Bible, and we have understanding, huh? And we know what really happens. You know, one day we'll be home and there'll be no more sorrow, and there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more death, there'll be no more devil. You know, when I was reading this right here, I was thinking about that, that, that new Jerusalem one day where we'll be there and that place ultimately teaching of where God dwells and where we dwell as well. And so you guys get caught up in that. You know, let heaven be not just a destination, but a motivation. Prayerfully, if you're here tonight and you, uh, you know, you've been struggling, um, I pray that, that you would make yourself accountable to someone. You know, lately the Lord has been ministering to me, and we can have the musicians come on up, uh, Cynthia and Sarah. Um, we need accountability. You know, you need someone, a friend, someone to, to just you know, keep you on track sometimes, you know, hey, you've been in the Bible, you've been praying, you've been going to church, you've been seeking the Lord, is there any secret sin in your life? You know, let's talk, let's make sure that we follow the Lord with all our hearts, you guys, and so I was thinking in the church, not that anyone's arrived, but some people are more disciplined than others, and so if you're a disciplined person, find someone who's not, <laughs> disciple them, love them, encourage them, keep them accountable. You guys, we got to do this together.